Well, I know that sounds like, a, if you're a guest, an incredibly arrogant sermon title, really the best sermon ever. You know, let's wait till the end. We'll reserve a little judgment on that. But if you've been with us for the last several weeks, we've been walking through uh, what I believe the greatest sermon ever preached. It was Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have a Bible with you, take it and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, once again, so the first four weeks we walked through uh, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount known as the Beatitudes. <clears throat> there is a temptation to look at that list and just think, man, how in the world? This is a daunting list that, that Christ expects us to live out. And it seems like the only way that's even possible is to retreat from culture and all the temptation, all the ungodliness. And some groups of people uh, have taken that route. Uh, some people have taken the idea of being separate from the world, and they have made that a geographical plan as opposed to a character statement. And they just kind of retreated uh, from culture. Uh, you may not know this about us, but we are uh, educationally bipolar at our house. And what I mean by that is this. As our oldest two kids go to public school uh, full-time, and our youngest two are homeschooled full-time. And one of the things we've learned is that for some people, the motive of homeschool uh, is a bunker mentality as opposed to a discipleship uh, opportunity. And here's what I think. I think the farther uh, that culture moves away from a biblical worldview, the greater the temptation will be for all Christians just to kind of retreat, just kind of, I'm going to worry about my family and, and keep my family on track, and the rest of the world, there's just not a hope for that. And uh, the Christian community has made that actually very easily. Did you know this? <clears throat> Did you know that um, with very little effort, you can navigate through, through the world, through life, and have uh, very little meaningful interaction with any non-Christians? Uh, we have Christian schools and Christian sports leagues, and we even have Christian blue pages. And so if you just navigate things well, you don't ever have to interact with any non-Christians. And some people have chosen uh, that route. But here's the problem. Uh, Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. And basically in verses 3 through 12, he says, hey, this is the kind of person I want you to be. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. These uh, lists here in the Beatitudes are the attitudes and actions that should characterize a Christ follower. Yeah, yeah, we got that, and it's challenging, and you know, it's hard to be poor in spirit, and all this, we got all that, we got that. Jesus said, okay, good, 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 because here's the deal. I want you to take that list, and I want you to internalize it, and then I want you to run out into the culture, the, the godless culture around you, and I want you to have impact. I want you to, to be a change agent. And so for them, uh, that seems like a daunting task today. We, we look at the news, we look at culture around us, and it clearly is moving away towards a biblical worldview, and so that seems daunting. But put yourself back in that original audience that Jesus is teaching to. They, they have no clout. They have no influence in culture. These are poor Jewish converts living under the uh, Roman captivity, and Rome was incredibly oppressive. That All they knew about was living under captivity. Uh, the Greeks, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now the Roman rule. And so the idea that these uh, people who their whole, every story they had known throughout their family history was about oppression, they had no influence, they had nothing to leverage, they had no one lobbying on their behalf for religious freedom, there was no vote to swing as an evangelical to shift favor in your direction, the only thing they had was a life that had been radically changed by Jesus Christ. Now the good news is this, that's the only thing that's needed according to this passage. It's the only thing that is needed, according to this passage. Uh, and so in spite of that, uh, the reality is Jesus tells them to go out into the culture and engage uh, the culture and uh, to make a difference, to, to leverage this idea that we're radically changed by Jesus. And as we go out into a culture that doesn't share our values, yes, 
There will be persecution, chapter 5, verses 10, 11, 12 tell us. But, but also along the way, as you're doing that, you'll have some influence. You, you'll come into contact with people who don't share your values, and God will use you uh, to influence their lives. <clears throat> but here's the problem. If you're listening, say amen. Good, because this is very important. The problem is this. Uh, it, many times as Christians in American culture, where we have crossed the line is where we start relying in political systems and sh- social structures to truly make a difference in the hearts of men. Now, do you know what they call that in the Bible when you rely on anything else besides Jesus for power and influence? That is called idolatry. That, that somehow, we, if we just hitch our wagons to this movement or this organization or this group, then somehow we'll, we'll be the change agent. But the reality is this. You cannot change the hearts of men with external influence. It will never happen, is what he's describing there. And so, in verses 3 through 12, Jesus begins to give a description. This is what it looks like. And uh, we, we sometimes, we don't know what that looks like in culture, do we? Like for some Christians, it's, I'm just going to retreat. For others, it is this brand of Christianity that I still haven't quite figured out. It's a lot of angry activism, a lot of ranting against the culture. And Jesus says, no, no, it looks a little different than that. And he begins to walk us through in verses 13 through 16, okay? So let's pick up the text in Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 13 this morning. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father uh, in heaven. And so Jesus begins to walk. He says, hey, this is the standard. This is what I want your life to look like. And then I want you to take that. And I want you to walk out into culture. And I want you to engage the culture around you. And he uses two illustrations as to what that actually looks like and uh, this morning. Now, if you've not been in church or this is your first time in church in a long time or you're here to kind of checking out what it means to be a Christian, uh, you, you've probably heard of these ideas. You've probably heard the phrase, uh, you are the salt of the earth. And so this is that passage where Jesus begins to walk us through uh, what exactly that looks like. And in doing so, he gives two illustrations. He says, you're salt. And then he says, you are light. And let me just tell you on the front end, We're going to spend a lot more time uh, looking at salt because I believe that's the one we don't understand what it means. And not only that, we don't understand what it looks like uh, in culture. And we'll just spend a little time talking about the second illustration, the light here uh, in this message this morning. So, and so Jesus is just telling them, he's giving this commission, go out, do this, be a change agent. And then here's what he says. The first principle I want you to see in this passage is this, is that being different is what produces influence. Being different uh, is what produces influence. Now, That is a loaded statement, is it not? Like everything in us works away from trying to be different. We want to blend in. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to seem odd. You know, ever since middle school, we just, you know, kind of, we just, we don't want anybody to think we're different or anything like that. And so everything inside of us works away towards being different. And then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, many times, and let's just be honest this morning, we all know Christians who in the call on their lives to be different, end up being not so much different, they just end up being weird, right? Would you just raise your hand if you know a weird, if you're sitting next to, would you just know, don't, right? And I don't care what your mom told you, listen, weird's not attractive. No one's looking out if you're, you know, if you're just, you're like, hey, look at that weird bird over there, I want to be just like them, right? 
No, look, people are going, people are walking on the other side of the street if they think you're weird. But yet Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I want you to be counterculture. I want you to engage the culture. And you're not going to be received or accepted. But just keep pressing on. Just keep uh, living out these truths. Because being different is what produces uh, influence. And here's the temptation. As culture moves away from a biblical world, and it has been and it will continue until Christ returns, is my understanding of prophecy. As culture moves away, there is a temptation uh, to begin to accommodate the culture with the hopes that we might gain fans and that in turn they might like the Jesus that we serve. And many churches have caved into that uh, temptation. If we just change our position as it relates to the sanctity of life, if we just change our position as it relates to to marriage, if we just change our position as it relates to sexuality, then, then the culture around us will like us more and then maybe they'll like our Jesus. And Jesus here himself is saying, no, 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 listen. You, you, are, you are being different. You're called to a different standard. You're called to a standard of righteousness. And that is what gets you noticed. That is where you're influenced. And if you cave in to the culture around you, you are like salt that has lost its saltiness. And we'll get to what that means uh, here in just a minute. And so, but there's a strategy. You can catch more flies with honey than you can vinegar. And Jesus is saying, no, uh, don't, don't do that. Don't cave into that type of thinking. Look again at verse 13. What does he say? You are the salt of the earth. But, here's a warning, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Now, this is a pretty plain English. Uh, uh, this is a common uh, term in culture. If someone is a person of, uh, you just love to be around, they're a person of integrity, and without hypocrisy in your life, you would just look at them, and one of the descriptors you would give is, oh, you would, you would enjoy being around them. They are the salt of the earth kind of people. Uh, this was a familiar phrase in their culture. Roman soldiers were actually paid in salt and would revolt uh, if they didn't get their ration. Our English word salary comes from the Latin word salarium, which literally means uh, salt money. We have a phrase in our culture that says, that person isn't worth their salt. By the way, if someone has said that of you, that is not a compliment. I don't know if you knew that or not, all right? And so th- this was the, all that comes out of this biblical example here. That, that's where all that language, it comes out of the first century culture. And so now, it seems pretty straightforward what Jesus is saying. However, here's what I want to tell you this morning. There is a tremendous amount of debate on verse 13 and what Jesus means in his call to be salt of the earth. Let me kind of describe the debate here for you in non-technical terms. Some people say, hey, listen, what he's calling is uh, salt is a preservative. And so he's calling us to preserve uh, Christianity within the culture. He's calling us to be you know, the people who are standing up and those kinds of things. And so some people would take salt as being a preservative, right? And there are all kinds of ways they think that plays out. Some people think that the primary usage of salt here in verse 13 is that of a flavoring agent or of a seasoning where whatever it comes into contact with, it radically changes it. Listen, we've all eaten something that upon eating it, all of a sudden you found out it had way too much salt, Right? We've all done that. Some of you just call that dinner. But whatever the case is, you know immediately that that salt has changed the property of that meal. And so some people say, that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what exactly uh, what he's describing about uh, here in this passage. Now, here's my experience. And I'm just going to say this. And, and uh, for some folks, um, th- this, doesn't, this is not going to sit well. But, but I just want to walk through this just a little bit this morning. For some folks, when they read this passage... When they talk about salt being a preservative agent, what they think is this is a call the, 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 to American Christians to preserve Christianity in our culture. 
And because they believe that, there ends up being a lot of angry activism, a lot of, you know, demanding my rights and those kinds of things. And, and, and I'm just going to say this, and again, some of you, this, this kind of rub you the wrong way, but that's not my heart this morning. That, that's not what he's talking about. And so if you find yourself in that vein of Christianity, you know, we're just constantly ranting against the culture and all these kinds of things, trying to preserve Christianity and the culture. That's not what he's describing. You say, well, how, how do you know that? Because I'm very passionate about that. I'm very passionate. The reason I know that is for a couple things. One, the context of this passage doesn't lend itself to that. Was he writing to Americans or not? Yes or no? You can say this out loud. Yes or no? No. And the other thing is this. Uh, I just told you, this is a group of people who have no influence in culture. They've lived their whole life, and their grandparents uh, lived their whole lives under the oppression of other governments. There was no Christianity to preserve in culture for them. That, that idea would have made no sense to the original audience. No sense at all. And so what exactly uh, is he talking about? But, but here's, here's my experience uh, in doing this. When I, when I say things like that, for folks who are very passionate about preserving Christianity and the culture, they think that's what this is a call to and those kind of things and whatever means necessary, you know, just whatever the case is, uh, what they say is this, well, um, here's the problem with that type of, of thinking, and I'm just going to walk you through it here. Well, that may not be true of the context of this passage, and, and here's what they say. But if Jesus were here today, he would fill in the blank. He would align himself with this group. He would vote for this candidate. He would rally the troops this way. Jesus would, and this is going to totally surprise you, but I hear that conversation. Well, if Jesus were here today, he would. I hear that all the time, every, every time it's election year. Would you believe that? I've had that conversation, I mean, a hundred times in the last 15 years of being a pastor. Well, pastor, I, you know, I think we should do this. I said, well, you know, well, I think if Jesus were here, he would fill in the blank. Let me tell you the problem with that. That's called arguing from silence. That's called, uh, Jesus never spoke about it. He was silent about what he would do. And so therefore, I think he would do this. So I'm going to insert my argument into his silence. And when you do that, uh, that is a gross mishandling of God's word. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say to support the agenda that you have. And that is incredibly dangerous. Incredibly dangerous. Folks, let me just make a statement this morning. Let the Bible speak for itself. Amen. Don't be scared of what the Bible teaches. Don't try to twist it to your agenda. Don't retract from it if it's not you know, what you thought or you believe, you agree with. Let the word of God speak for itself. It is sufficient. It has all authority. It has been perfectly preserved. It is inerrant. It is infallible. Let the word of God speak for itself. So, what is he saying? Thank you for the golf clap, whoever that one Pentecostal in the room is. So, what is, what, is he, what is he saying here then? Look, look at it again. Look at it again. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Now, now I understand the, the, the disagreement over what he means here uh, because the natural idea of salt is a preservative, right? Uh, certainly in their first century uh, culture. But then he does say, uh, he talks about salt losing its flavor. He talks about it, uh, how shall it be seasoned. And so that seems the idea is salt is this change agent, you know, going out and changing things, uh, those kind of things. So exactly uh, what is he talking about? Well, let me uh, share with you my understanding of what he's teaching here. And if you disagree with that, listen, I, I, that's totally fine. Uh, just if you have an angry email, feel free to send me that. It's kyle at libertyheights.org, and I'll get back with you quickly, all right? So... Uh, 
I hope you get tired of me saying this. Uh, I hope, like, if you never learn anything from, from me, I hope the one thing you learn is that context is the key to determining interpretation, all right? You know, uh, there's three rules in real estate. What is it? Location, location, what? Yeah, so there's three rules in Bible interpretation. It's context, context. What's the third one? Yeah, I hope uh, if someone would have yelled out the wrong answer, I would have made fun of you, all right? I just want to acknowledge it, okay? So what is the context here? When he's speaking to these people and he makes a reference to Saul, uh, what would have been the context uh, of that uh, first century audience where there was no refrigeration? Uh, the most common usage for salt in their day was not as a flavoring agent. Like they, they wouldn't have thought when he said that, they wouldn't have thought, oh, it's like when you put you know, the soup and you add this in or the meat, you know, whatever the case. They would have thought, no, no, no. He's talking about being a preservative. But that, that, that was the most common understanding. There's a rule in interpreting the Bible the plain thing is the main thing. In other words, some people read the Bible, they, they assume nothing at face value. Like there's some mystery here. You know, it says this, but there's some mysterious meaning. No, that's the exception. When you're interpreting scripture, the plain thing is the main thing. And the plain thing here is to understand in their culture that salt was a preservative. Now, uh, so what is, let me give you some other Bible scholars who have weighed in on this issue. Uh, D.A. Carson, one of the greatest New Testament scholars in the world, said this, salt was used in the ancient world to flavor foods and even in small doses uh, as a fertilizer. I, I didn't know that until this week. Uh, he says, above all, though, salt was used as a preservative rubbed into meat, a little salt would slow decay. Craig Blomberg, again, one of the world's greatest scholars, said this, of the numerous things which salt could refer to in antiquity, its use as a preservative in food was probably uh, its most basic function, is what he's describing there. And so, so they both agree uh, that, that this, is, this is a call. Jesus saying, hey, listen, you're, you're preservative. You're preservative. Now, here, here's a good question, right? Very important question. Who cares? Right? Like, thank you for the history lesson. Thank you for the, uh, you know, the context, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, what, what difference does that make? How in the world is viewing salt as a preservative, that's uh, the function here, how does that change how I live Monday through Saturday? And some people, like, like they, when they begin to play that out, uh, they just say, hey, listen, we've got to hold on to our Christianity, so let's retreat from the culture. Let's just hunker in the bunker and just wait till Jesus returns. And some people would take that and say, hey, I think it means preserving Christianity within a culture, and we should fight for Christianity in the culture of America, even though I told you that has nothing to do with the context, that's just what you want to do. And so what exactly uh, is, is at play here? And so, so here, here's the thing. You've got one Jesus saying, hey, listen, you're a preservative. You're preserving something. What does it look like? All those things. And then you've got Jesus over here in the Great Commission saying, hey, listen, go out. Matter of fact, in the Greek, go you therefore and, and uh, preach the gospel to all nations. Uh, the, the, in the original Greek language, uh, the word is the present tense. It means as you are going, as you are rubbing shoulders with a culture that rejects your message. And so there is no margin or allowance for this idea of retreating into all these Christian sub-circles of our culture and just worrying about me and my family and my kids and, and the rest of the world is just going to hell in a handbasket, right? There's no margin for that. But what exactly does it look like? If it's not angry activism, uh, what exactly does it look like? So listen closely because I'm going to learn you something this morning, all right? Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, hey, listen. This list in verses 3 through 12... Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the 
uh, those who persecute for the sake of righteousness, blessed are you, know, all these things. This list, listen, here's what you're going to find. When you're living a, a standard of righteousness that I just described in verses 3 through 12 that we spent four weeks walking through, what you're going to find as you walk out into culture, there will be an incredible temptation to either compromise because the pushback from culture or to accommodate culture with the hopes that if I win them to me, then I can win them to the Jesus that I serve. He's saying, no, no, listen, preserve, hold fast. Preserve this standard of righteousness that I have called you to. It's not about preserving righteousness in a culture. It's about preserving righteousness in your own heart. That's what he's describing here. And as you do that, as you hold fast or preserve these standards of righteousness that I laid out for you in verses 3 through 12, then as you go in, in, in a culture that doesn't hold your values, guess what? You will have influence. It is the distinctiveness of your values that causes you to make a difference. It's not accommodating. It's not caving in. It's not retreating. It's holding fast to a standard of not self-righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ and going into the culture that you know is not going to receive it. And you're not obnoxious, but you're not afraid. Why? Because God goes before you. And as you hold fast, then guess what? As you preserve that, you will have a flavoring, a seasoning, a changing of the culture around you. So that is the byproduct that will happen. And so that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And in verses 11 and 12, he says, hey, listen, you, there will be some persecution. There will be some pushback, is what he says in verses 10, 11, and 12. And uh, what happens is this. Uh, even though there's influence along the way, what happens is this. Uh, we just, we just kind of get in this mentality of, you know what, um, just the culture is too strong. And, and biblical Christianity is just getting thrown out the window. I see it all the time on the news and stories that play out in culture and all those kinds of things. And, and here's what happens. We get into a state of despair. Can we just be honest this morning? That we watch the news and, and we get into a state of despair. And what happens is the temptation is to uh, uh, think that we can somehow regain cultural influence uh, through some kind of political affiliation. Can I just tell you this? That our hope, hear me this morning, our hope is not in the donkey or in the elephant. It is in the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. And if you want to change the world, love people who don't agree with your values. Now, should we defend religious liberty? Yes. Do I think you should vote? Absolutely. Do I think you should? But do I ever put my hope in any of those things? Absolutely not. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most powerful force. And when you begin to live it out in a culture that doesn't receive it and you love them anyway, it will change the hearts of men. And if you change the hearts of men, you will change society as a whole. That's how it works. But it won't happen retreating. I'm just going to preserve you know, my own little circle, my kids, you know, kind of hunker in. You know, it's not about preserving in, in, you know, Christianity and culture as a whole and get back America, back where it used to be. This kind of, that's not the context of this passage. He says, no, no, listen, hold fast, preserve a standard of righteousness that will not be recognized or received and will be persecuted. But, but along the way, you will have influence with some. And seeing their hearts turn towards Christ is worth it. It is worth it, is what he's describing uh, here. And so, let me just uh, challenge you a little bit this morning and make this as practical as possible. When God calls us to an uncommon standard of righteousness in the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verses 1 down through verse 12, 
then people should look at our lives and not say, hey, they're weird. They should look at our lives and say, there's something, they're, they're, they're operating on a different set of values. And it interests me. And I want to inquire. Uh, so, so let me give you some real life scenarios of where that should play out. Uh, l- let me just ask you a couple questions this morning. One, does the way that you treat uh, your spouse make Christ attractive to your unbelieving family and friends? Because the world says marriage is a contract, and if someone breaks the contract or don't do their part, then you just you know, do whatever, treat them however you want because they broke their end of the deal. When, when the Bible says that marriage is a covenant between two people and the Lord, you know, the, the, the world says, hey, listen, if it's a contract, it's all about gaining the upper hand in the contract. And here Jesus comes along and says, hey, listen, if you want to influence your wife, guys, then, then lay down your life or serve her, sacrifice on her behalf. And people look at that and they go, I, that doesn't make sense to me. You're living by a different set of values. And you can talk openly what the Lord. But let me ask you another question. If we're living by a different set of values, uh, then that should show up in, in circles where we're parents and, and grandparents. Let me, let me just let you a little secret. Did, did you know this? This is fascinating. Did you know that for some people in culture, uh, parenting is a competitive sport? Did you know that? And, and the, the goal of having children, they would never say this openly, but clearly the behavior uh, shows that their heart is bent towards this a little bit, that the goal of having children is to make myself look better. God help our kids, amen? And it's all about, um, and, and, and I see this play, and then they achieve this, and I, I joke, joke, you know, that some parents, that you know, oh, how school stuff, oh, is this great? How was, oh, they had a first date, it was okay, it was kind of awkward. How was, how was Johnny's little first date? Oh, it's great, he shared the gospel with all of his homeroom, it was fantastic. Eight people got saved and two were on the mission field. Really? I got a note home that says, hey, your kid ate glue today, I just want you to know in case they're sick, Right? And so does the way that you behave at at your kids' or your grandkids' sporting events represent that you're living by a different set of values? And people are losing their minds. Did you know that every time your kid or grandkid loses, it's because your kids were playing against the other team and the ref? Have you noticed that? Oh, what happened? Oh, the refs, they just got homered again. That's weird. You're 0 and 16. You've got this, you know, that's weird. And people are like, aren't you mad? Aren't you? I don't hear you scream. I don't hear you losing your marbles. No, why? Because you're living by a different set of values. Because you know, at the end of the day, your child representing Christ in wins or losses, and you representing Christ in wins or losses, is more important in the big picture than the win or the loss itself. Can I get an amen this morning? And so when Jesus says, hey, listen, you're the salt of the earth. You're living by a different set of values and don't retreat from culture and, and, don't, and don't resort to angry activism and, and don't just uh, disengage, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, Jesus said, now listen, hold fast, preserve my righteousness in your heart. And as you go about culture, people say, hey, listen, You're living by a different set of values. Why? Because the hope that's within me, his name is Jesus. And so that's exactly uh, what he's talking about. So so what happens if we don't take this challenge seriously? Look at verse 13 again. He tells us, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? So he's talking about salt as a preservative, preserving the righteousness of Christ in a culture 
that does not celebrate that. And then he says this, Is it then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot uh, by men? Now, we don't understand that doesn't make sense to us, but in their day, uh, that was a very real thing. And so what happens, they would harvest salt from the, from the, from the sea, and they would just, you know, but also other things, it wasn't pure salt, and, you know, just kind of brought it all in. And they would heap up this salt, and they would store it in huge mounds uh, on the ground. And so there's salt and all these other things in there. So what happens is, if they didn't get to that uh, in, a, in, a, in a close amount of time, uh, the salt, the sodium chloride, would actually seep back into the ground. And what you were left with is this pile of stuff that had lost its saltiness. And so he's not, he's not saying that salt can no longer be salty. Sodium chloride is a stable compound. You're welcome for that wisdom. I don't know why I said that, all right? <laughs> but what he says is, what, what, what they were left with was this pile of stuff that, that no longer uh, was serving the preservative function because all the salt had seeped back into the ground and they couldn't throw it on the crops because it would kill it. And so what they would do, they just throw it out in the street and it'd be trampled underfoot. That's what he's saying there in verse 13. You're like a salt that's lost its saltiness and it's not good for anything. It's just trampled underfoot. It's like the worthless stuff you throw out in the ground. Now, what's he saying here? What he's not saying is you've lost your salvation. What he's saying is you've lost your influence. You can take whatever it is and you can shake it on your food all you want and it, it, there's no influence. There's no flavor. There's no seasoning. It's lost it. And so what he says is this. When you cave in and no longer hold fast to the standard of righteousness because either you, you want to accommodate culture or you want to retreat from culture, he says you, you, you've lost your influence is what he's saying in verse 13. And so salt can neither flavor nor preserve if it stays in the salt shaker. So Jesus challenges not only to preserve the righteousness in us, uh, he tells us to do it for the sake of the world around us. Look at verses 14 through 16 very quickly here this morning. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, uh, but on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Is it just me that when you read that, do you not sing that song in your head? This little light of mine. Who knows? Let's sing that. Are you ready? One? No, we're not. All right. Won't let Satan it out. I just had to say that too, all right? Verse 16. Here's the motive. The motive is not for people to look at me and this standard of self-righteousness and look how holy they are. Here's the motive in verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that, cause and effect, that they may see your good works and, here it is, glorify your Father in heaven. Listen, the reason we're light in a dark world or we're representing Christ's light in a dark world is not so people look at us and go, oh, they've got, they've got it so together, you know, their clothes always match, and they go to church every Sunday, and it's got this perfect little family, and I want to be just like them. No, 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 listen, the reason we live out this truth is that people look at our lives and say, I don't know what they have, but I want to be just like Jesus. And they're representing him clearly in a culture that has opposite values, and, out, and, then, and they glorify our Father, which is in heaven. Listen, everything you do that is a good work, is for one reason only. It's not to get you or your kids noticed. It's to get Jesus noticed. That's it. That's the whole motive according to this verse. Whole motive according to this verse. Verses 14 through 16 this is not hard to understand. I don't like, like salt. What does it mean? Flavoring, seasoning. How do you know? Let's go to history. I don't have to do all that interpretive work this morning for you. It's real simple. Light permeates darkness and it changes what's, whatever it comes in contact with. Light pushes back the darkness. That's not hard to understand interpretively. What it's hard to do is to live out faithfully. 
And it's going to get harder. And again, there is a temptation when you watch the news is just say, you know what? I'm just going to disengage from the culture. I'm just going to get my kids and my grandkids over here in a safe environment. And I'm just going to preserve Christ's work in us and the rest of the world to just have to fend for themselves. And I, uh, listen, I've got four kids. I understand that temptation. Let me share with you some words that were written in 1937 in a book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote this 80 years ago. Now, do we not have a a tendency as as people to always romanticize the past? To always say, I wish things were back to the way they used to be. You know, when I read the letters of the uh, New Testament churches, they were jacked up just like us. Isn't that good and (laughs) encouraging? Just as dysfunctional as we are, they just have labels or medication, right? That's the only difference between them and us. And so there's a temptation to look back 80 years in the culture and go, well, the, you know, America's not what it used to be. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, 1937. Here's what he said. Flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself from culture has ceased to follow him. That was in 1937. When you watch the news, you see stuff online, you've got two options. You can either proclaim the world is not as it used to be, the world's headed to hell in a handbasket, or you can say, what a time to be alive and a follower of Jesus. What a time to share his light given the darkness of the culture around us. What, what, how humbling is it that God, you have trusted me and found me faithful to represent you in this godless culture. What a time, what an opportunity to live for Christ and make a difference in a dark and broken world as his light shines through me. What a time. What a place to be on mission for Jesus. And folks, what I'm here to tell you is this. The good news is this. You can get discouraged by the culture, but here's the good news. You don't have to look very far or very long to find someone who's been damaged by the darkness of sin and shine Christ's light on them. There's another word for oppression. Can I give it to you this morning? Opportunity. You know, the greatest advancement of the church all throughout church history, if you study history, was in times of deep persecution because Christians could no longer be complacent because they had to hold fast because there was no, there was no option for casual Christianity. And they just say, listen, hold fast. And, the, and the, the gospel began to spread all throughout church history. Now, we're, we're done, and so, so why, why would you... Why, listen, it's just easier just to disengage... Get me and my family over here and do this and live this way until Jesus comes back. And so why would I engage the culture around me when they don't share my values? Because here's why. Listen, this makes everything worth it for me. Because if you live that way, you may get to heaven and worship with friends that you used to call enemies. And that alone is worth it for me. And though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back.
no turning back. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I just want to ask you first and foremost, the most important question. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I'm not asking you if you're religious. I'm not asking you if you believe in God. I'm not asking you if you're a member of some church. I'm asking you this morning, has there been a time and a place where you've personally received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if the answer is no, I can't point back to a time or a season in my life where I made the choice to surrender Jesus Christ. Then can I just share with you this morning, today's the day of salvation. You may have walked in here without the assurance that heaven's your home, but Jesus himself said, I came so that you may know that you have eternal life. And if you're here this morning, And you're not sure that heaven will be your home. You're hoping, you're wishing, but you're not sure. I'd like to invite you to make sure this morning. I'd like to invite you to pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I don't care if you're a member of a church. I don't care if you're a member of this church. I don't care what religious rituals you've been through. I'm inviting you right now to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior in an act of surrender. And so if that's your heart's desire this morning, if you're not sure that heaven will be your home. I'd like to invite you to pray and receive Christ this morning and make sure. Would you just follow me along in this prayer if if it signifies what your heart wants this morning? God, I know that you love me, but I do acknowledge this morning that I need your forgiveness. I've made mistakes. I've sinned. I've not met the standard that Jesus set with his own life. And I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for my sins, was buried, and rose the third day. And I receive him today as my Lord and my Savior. Come into my life. I want to follow you. Thank you for saving me. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. If you're here this morning and you said, hey, you know what? I prayed to receive Christ today or I prayed to gain assurance of salvation today. Would you just slip up your hand and say, that's me. I I prayed for the assurance of salvation today or to receive Christ. Anyone like that this morning? Amen. Anybody else? Maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you're discouraged. You see what's going on in the culture around us. You're worried for your kids and your grandkids. You know that God is sovereign and in control, but your heart has been gripped by fear because of the culture around you. And so you've retreated. But this morning, God has challenged you to engage the people around you who don't know Christ, to love people who don't share your values. And you need to get back to doing that. You say, hey, pastor, pray for me. I don't want to retreat. I want to be the salt of the earth. I want to be light in a dark world. Pray for me. Because that looks different outside the safety of these walls. Pray that God would give me courage and wisdom. Would you just raise your hand up? Amen. Amen. Lots of, raise your hand. Amen. Pray for me. Let me pray for you this morning. God, I, I pray that you would help us to be the salt of the earth. God, help us to guard against retreating from culture. Guard our hearts from angry activism that doesn't make a, a difference. 
God, help us to move forward in culture and hold fast or preserve the righteousness that you've called us to, knowing that the culture won't welcome that. God, help us to love people who don't share our values. Because at one time, that was us. And you saved us anyway. And so God, give us courage as we engage back into culture starting tomorrow and this afternoon. Give us wisdom about when to speak up and when to just listen and love people. More than anything, Lord, we want to be a people that advance the gospel. And so, Lord, thank you for finding us faithful in such a time as this. May we be the light of the world in a world that desperately needs it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning and God spoke to your heart uh, this morning, you feel like, hey, I felt like you were talking right to me. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you through the Word of God. And the worst thing you can do is walk out of here and never share that with anyone, never take any further steps of obedience and respond to that. And so you say, well, how do I respond to that? Uh, what does that look like? Well, there's a few ways. On the side of your worship folder is a little card, and you can write in there, hey, I prayed to receive Christ today, or hey, I want to get baptized. We've got a baptism coming up, or I'm rededicating my life to Christ today. Or there's a spot in there where if you just have a prayer request, and uh, turn, write that prayer request in there, and you can drop in the offering plate in just a moment, and those prayer requests get passed out to our staff every Monday morning in a staff meeting. Uh, you can let us uh, reach out to us through email. You can take your smartphone. Next at libertyheights.org, you can send us an email. That email goes to our pastors, and we will follow up with you this week if you have questions or uh, want us to pray for you about something you heard today. But at the end of the service, I'm down here at the front. Uh, some of our staff will be around. I'll stay here as long as you want me to, talk with you, pray with you, encourage you, whatever I can do this morning in response to what God has done in your heart. All right? Well, we're going to invite our ushers to come forward, and we're going to continue to worship God uh, through generous giving this morning. We live in a noisy world. Each generation has its own sound. The sound of this generation is something entirely different. Something unexpected. What if the cry of this generation isn't defined by the culture? What would happen if students came together in unity with purpose to pray? See you at the poll, Wednesday, September 28th, 2016. We cry out, a generation seeking Him. See you at the poll. You have a student living in your home. We hope that you'll encourage them uh, a week from this Wednesday to get to their school early. Join other students from their school for See You at the Poll, which is a national day of prayer.
uh, for high school students and junior high students alike. Uh, it's really cool to get out there and see them praying for their friends, for their teachers, for everybody around. It's a, it's a really neat thing. Uh, we also hope that you'll join us back here tonight for the Jackson Heights concert uh, as they kick off their fall tour. Uh, come back tonight. They've got a merch table set up out in the ministry mall there. Stop by. You can pick up a CD or a shirt or something like that. That helps kind of fund their ministry as they go through uh, some of this stuff. And we really hope that this has spoken to you today, that you will leave here today excited about what, what's going on. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting that just yesterday my son and I were reading through one of the devotions that I go through. And Paul was talking about that for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And that no matter what happens, if I can live my life and be the influence for this world, that is, that is Christ. And then if I don't, it's gain because I go to be in heaven with God. And so it's amazing that we can see that through this passage here in these verses. And so uh, we hope that this will speak to you and we hope that you will live that out this week. Let, let the righteousness that Christ has put on you with that positional righteousness preserve you as you go out and be an influence through those around you. So we hope you have a great rest of the day. Enjoy the beautiful weather and we'll see you here tonight or next Sunday.